If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, we consider an event that happened on this day 850 years ago. On the 29th of December, 1170, Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was brutally murdered within Canterbury Cathedral. His assailants fled, and almost immediately, a saintly cult grew up around the man. Dr Emily Gerry, Senior Lecturer in Medieval History at the University of Kent, explains the story to our content director, Dr Dave Musgrove. Please be aware that the murder itself was pretty gruesome, and there's a graphic description of what happened in this podcast. So, Thomas Beckett uh, was murdered this day, 29th December, 850 years ago. Uh, There were to be all manner of events and commemorations around this anniversary, but Corona has consigned most of them to history. Uh, Nevertheless, it's still very much worth talking about him and finding out what happened. So, Emily, first of all, can you just uh, drop us into the Beckett story a little bit? I know we don't know a huge amount, perhaps, about his early years, but what is his backstory? What what, what can we say about uh, where he comes from? Well, it's always a delight to talk about Thomas Beckett and to teach his life and death and legacy because he's actually one of the best recorded individuals from the Middle Ages. Um, With that said, because he was born into a relatively normal family, uh, a merchant's son from Cheapside, Uh, his father was called Gilbert, his mother was called Matilda, but there is a later tradition in the Middle Ages that she was a Saracen woman whom he fell madly in love with in the sort of Latin East, but that's neither here nor there. Um, We don't know a lot about his early life, but the bits we do know show that he came from a humble background. Uh, His name, Thomas, in fact, probably relates to the the idea that he was born on the feast day of Thomas the Apostle. So that would have been the 21st of December. And we assume this took place in 1120. Um, In this humble beginning, he went on to become a man of great kind of power. And in his early life, uh, he did study in London. He studied in Paris. And he eventually caught the eye of some very powerful people, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, then Theobald, and also the future King Henry II. Thank you. Now, so, so his parents, just quickly, uh, they, they were of Norman stock, is, is that right? So was he, uh, was he brought up in a, in a Norman family in some way? 
Well, the name Gilbert uh, and the name Matilda imply a certain <laughs> understanding of some sort of Norman heritage. But I think, and this is true of many medieval people who loved and venerated Beckett, I think Beckett was a Londoner through and through. He's really a man from Cheapside. And what's so interesting uh, about the later afterlife of his cult in London is that by the 15th century, it was actually quite a sort of popular pilgrimage destination to go to the gravesite, or rather the alleged gravesite, of his parents who were buried in St. Paul's Cathedral in the Pardoner's Churchyard. Um, so I'd say, yes, of course, uh, the names imply that uh, there's some sort of degree of Norman identity here, but Beckett was a Londoner. Um, and to some extent, he's also such a universal saint that he can sort of belong to anyone in that form too. So he was a Londoner, but he also studied uh, in, in Paris, and, and uh, he was a well-educated man. Was he was he a cosmopolitan Londoner? Would you say? Uh, yes, I'd say he would have been cosmopolitan. But I think what uh, got him such a, a winning reputation was his intellect, his charisma, his grit. Um, he was a famously um, argumentative, passionate person. Um, he loved debate, and he was always surrounded by friends with whom he was sharing quite sort of um, pugnacious uh, arguments. Um, this is probably what attracted him to, to Paris and enabled him to complete, or rather, we think he completed most of his education there. And uh, he spent a lot of time in France later on in his life during his exile, which again indicates that he was really making friends and rubbing shoulders with some of the um, academic and theological elite of Europe. Uh, a charismatic man, do you think? Yes, um, and one reason we know so much about Beckett's persona, or rather personality, is um, a lot of his friends went on to write biographies about his life. Um, and we know about his diets, we know about his mood swings, uh, we know about his sometimes having uh, a little bit of anxiety before making a speech, um, sometimes having like an ulcerous pain in his stomach. But yes, he would have been very charismatic by all accounts. And um, and when I say all accounts, again, um, he, there are so many medieval biographies and hagiographies of Beckett because... Within three years of his death, that is in 1170, he was canonized in 1173. So a lot of people started writing what they knew of him. And uh, before we jump into that story a bit, that, so all those accounts that are written uh, after the fact of him, they are presumably uh, couched and understood in the sense that he became a saint. So uh, it must be quite hard to study them, or at least you have to study them with that knowledge, because presumably they're written in a, if, particularly if they're hagiographies, they're written in a certain way. Yes, that's such an important point. Um, so, for instance, some of the earliest vitae or lives about Beckett um, are used to sort of help uh, support the initiative to canonize him. So I I'm thinking uh, specifically of there are five extant eyewitness accounts of his martyrdom, which is pretty incredible for an event in the Middle Ages to have five different viewpoints that are well recorded. Um, and one of the most famous and influential of these accounts was by a man called Edward Grimm, who was just a sort of student visiting from Cambridge who happened to be in Canterbury Cathedral on that fateful day on the 29th of December in 1170. And he ends up becoming an injured bystander in the martyrdom. Um, his, his arm nearly gets cut off, and he writes about this. It's, it's an extraordinary bit of text. And 
Edward Grimm goes on to write with whatever arm he has left, um, a really compelling version of that event. And uh, this, this, this text dates to around 1171, 1172. It's the most influential of the biographies, yes, or rather hagiographies, as you rightly say. But then what else is so interesting to us as historians is a lot of Beckett's closest friends in life, including someone called Herbert of Bosham, um, he's writing much, much later in the 1180s. So we're looking at a decade after the canonization. And you get this much more human, flawed portrait of Beckett that emerges after his canonization um, from the mind and the mouth of a friend. So there's great variety in the source material that survives that relates anecdotes about his life, his behavior, his charisma, etc. Right, we, we've skipped on a bit, um, uh, and, but I'm sure our listeners will want a, just a little reminder, uh, particularly today of all days, uh, the, the anniversary uh, of what actually happened. So, um, so Beckett, as you said, he, uh, he joined the service of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and then he went on to, uh, to catch the eye of the King, Henry II, and became the King's Chancellor. Uh, and then he has, I don't know, would you describe their relationship in uh, in modern terms as a bromance, or do you think that's uh, that's uh, a silly thing to say? I think it's a fun thing to say, and it's certainly something that has become important to a number of playwrights and uh, romantic historians. I'm thinking, of course, of T.S. Eliot's Murder in a Cathedral, or even um, the film Beckett from 1962. There's a sense of their friendship being extremely intimate and very charged with jealousy. Um, as far as we know, though, they were incredibly close. And I think that the main point to make as a historian or someone who is reading these uh, wonderful books and sources is to understand that there was a, a great um, deal of trust and loyalty that had been built up between these two men over a number of years. Um, when Henry II, as a young man, would have first met Beckett, he was very impressed by him. And when Beckett became chancellor, that's really when their friendship became close. Um, and when the see, or rather the, the, the role of Archbishop of Canterbury becomes, becomes vacant in 1162, and in 1163, when Beckett is made Archbishop, this is viewed by many as a gesture of a powerful friend helping a powerful friend into place. Um, so to that, to, in that sense, um, yes, they were extremely close and unusually so for, again, a man born in Cheapside and the man with a crown on his head. Um, that, that we cannot deny. And a, and a big part of the story, of course, is what happens after he becomes Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, and resigns the chancellorship, uh, and then sets himself on this collision course with Henry, and 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 has this the dramatic conversion to 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 the defender of, of church rights. Now, it's not that's not an area that I, I want to dwell on hugely uh, deeply in this conversation, but it, obviously it's very important. Do do you have a sense about um about what happened there? Why? Was was he just biding his time, playing the man about time? Uh, town was he was he always going to become this this defender of church rights? What what what's your sense of of what happened there? Well, th this is one of the fascinating uh, moments in the story of Beckett's life, and it's something that the the men around him who are writing his biographies and hagiographies struggle to sort of deal with. Um, around the year 1163 and into 1164, when Beckett is now the head of the church, the primate here in this part of the world in the British Isles, um, he, he suddenly changes in his demeanor and his personality. And he suddenly starts publicly challenging the king's authority. 
and calling for the end of cronyism. He's calling for the king to stop appointing people in the church who are his friends. And this is exactly how Beckett got his job. So one can understand the frustration uh, from the point of view of even um, a modern person looking back at Henry II. Um, there, there's a, the breaking point comes uh, around 1164, and uh, there's a group of um, kind of laws now associated with the place of that event. We call this the Council of Clarendon. And there are two key points here that really lead to the breakdown in their relationship and Beckett's exile. The first of which is Beckett is demanding from the king that the church should have the right to punish criminous clerks, not the state, but the church. And secondly, there are huge issues with the balance of power and who has that power in this kingdom. And Beckett is calling for an overhaul of the traditional relationship between how the crown runs affairs in the church. And at the end of this council, um, it is agreed that Beckett must swear an oath to uphold the rules uh, set by the king, and he refuses to do so. Thus, he shoots into exile. He goes from Northamptonshire across the Channel into France and ends up spending most of his archbishopric, most of his time for six years in France. He goes to Sens, which is where the archbishop of that part of the world is based, and to Pontigny, which is a place uh, full of Cistercians, very devout people. And um, yes, so he, he is staying away. He is in big trouble. He flees from the king. He refuses to submit. And yes, he, he seems to have totally changed in the way he relates, not just to Henry, but to the whole public world. Um, yes, he appears now to be a great defender of the church and the, the rights of the church in the wake of the rising power of the state and its machinery. Right. So then all sorts of interesting thing hap things happen in that uh, in the next six years when he's in exile, uh, which we're going to skip over a bit because <laughs> I want to I take us up to, uh, to, to, to the anniversary. So December 1170. And um, what's happened uh, by then is that uh, there's been a reconciliation of sorts. Uh, Thomas Beckett's back in Canterbury and uh, King Henry is holding court in Normandy. Uh, at Christmas. And uh, there are still unresolved issues between the two. And we have this, this story of the king asking his assembly the famous lines, uh, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? Now, is that apocryphal? Did he ever say anything like that? It's a wonderful phrase, and it's something that we hear about in popular culture today. Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Or sometimes the word is meddlesome. I quite like that one. Um, I think I heard it most recently a couple of years ago when the former director of the FBI, James Comey, uh, appeared before the Senate in a hearing from the Intelligence Committee about the, the way in which he might have succumbed to a directive from then-President Trump. Um, and the senator interviewing him from Maine, Senator King, said, oh, it reminds me of you know, that passage, uh, will no one rid me of that meddlesome priest? Yes, just like Thomas Beckett, that's exactly how I felt. I could not believe my ears that the former director of the FBI, who had studied history at William and Mary College, James Comey, was referring to Beckett as an archetype in his experience of working with Donald Trump. But 
that just goes to show how memorable some of these phrases are. So when it comes to the actual language of what happened, it's difficult to know, of course. And yes, in early December, you know, as we are doing now, we're celebrating the spirit of Christmas. There would have been a fantastic feast in Normandy at the King's Palace at a place called Beur-le-Roi. And people were drinking. Um, there was a lot of tension in the air because Beckett was coming back. He was going to cross the channel and come back to Kent. He was on his way to take back his power. And at some stage that evening, King Henry II said something that made people stop and listen. He had an outburst. And Edward Grimm, our most influential hagiographer, said something like, uh, he, he cried out about the, the miserable drones around him and also that he had been, um, he was very frustrated by the person who was so lowborn who'd come to challenge him this much. So the, the turn of phrase we use today is a helpful way of summarizing and connecting emotionally to that outburst from a, from a former friend. And in fact, if we look carefully at the language used, um, the whole understanding of the meddlesome priest, it actually comes not from T.S. Eliot or any of the hagiographers. Um, it doesn't even come from the Beckett play uh, written by Jean Anouilly uh, in the 1960s, uh, first performed in Paris and then New York. It comes from the film Beckett. It's from the screen, screenplay. And it's uttered by, in the first instance, Peter O'Toole. And uh, so it's so wonderful, the transformation of medieval hagiography into popular culture. And even if this phrase isn't correct, it's certainly stuck around and it has a lot of meaning. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, right. But, but the upshot is, is that uh, some, some men, some of Henry's men, crossed the channel uh, with, with, with uh, murderous intent uh, and uh, end up in Canterbury uh, uh, in late December... Uh, 1170. So can you just pick up the story there and give us a bit of a colour about what happens and, and, and how uh, Beckett meets his end? Yes, well, so we cannot be sure exactly what which words King Henry II used on that night when he had his outburst, but we know for sure that four knights who were there in residence with the king decided that was a command and decided that they could take action and they could stop this low-born cleric from shamefully, you know, inhibiting the power of the king. And we have their names. We know they packed up that next day and crossed the channel, went to Kent, made their way to Canterbury. And the names of these four knights are Reginald Fitzurse, Hugh de Morville, William de Tracy, and Richard Lebret. And the sort of fun thing to do with those names is to pick them apart and think about their symbolic meaning, which is actually what a lot of hagiographers did. So Reginald Fitzurse, he's of the bear. Uh, Hugh de Morville, more like Deathville, one of them says. And finally, Richard Lebret or Lebreton, what a brute. Um, so the names have meaning even in the story here. So yes, they, they believed what the king said uh, to be a directive. They crossed the channel. They came to Canterbury. And on the 29th of December, uh, in, in the afternoon, it would have been very dark. And uh, Thomas Beckett was back with his community, the monks of Christ Church. He was also surrounded by a number of trustworthy friends, some of whom had he'd spent a lot of time with in France, and some of whom were sort of new friends uh, back in the community at Christ Church. Um, 
We know that when the four knights entered the precincts, they passed uh, into Beckett's hall or chambers to speak with him, and they did not bring their swords into that space, but they definitely had an argument. What the men wanted to do was to arrest Beckett, to capture him, and to take him to Winchester and hold him accountable for his actions and challenging the king and whipping up sort of frustration with Pope Alexander III and really, yes, with controlling Beckett. Beckett, of course, totally refused their demands. And so the knights went out again and said, we are coming back. In the meantime, Beckett's friends then realized that something very, very bad could could happen. And they usher him out of the archiepiscopal palace and into the sanctuary of Canterbury Cathedral. Now, some versions, some hagiographers, some biographers say that Beckett calmly walked down the cloisters into the north transept door of Canterbury Cathedral. Others say his friends had to drag him there. Um, but what we do know is he, is he was definitely in the north transept around the time of the end of Vespers, and they did not bolt the door closed. But in walked those four knights again, now armed with weapons. And what comes next is perhaps the most gruesome act of sacrilege in the history of uh, Canterbury, in the history of England, and perhaps in most of Europe, um, which I'd be happy to tell you more about. Uh, Yes, please. And also, I suppose um, we ought to just dwell briefly on the fact that Beckett he he could have escaped, couldn't he? He could have he could have fled or hid or something at some point in the in the proceedings here, but he chose not to. Um, so he's what does that tell us about him and his character? Yes, well, uh, a lot of the sources give us a picture of Beckett as someone who is um, stoic, full of his own self control, and yet completely stubborn. Um, yes, he could have fled. He could have walked away. He could have ordered someone to bolt the door. There's a sense not of him inviting his death, but rather being prepared for whatever his fate could be. And a lot of his biographers, hagiographers, write about in the years, not just running up to this event, but also the days running up to the event, Thomas would hint at a sense of a grisly future death and hint at his awareness and preparedness for suffering for his his beliefs, his belief in the independence of the church from the crown, And there's a lot of language he used which seemed to be prophetic about what eventually became his fate, yes. Sure. So we can imagine the scene, the darkening gloom of a a December afternoon, cold, chilly, presumably, uh, stone flooring. What, What happens? Well, it's around Vespers, and that's the time when the monks sing uh, in the afternoon evening. And because this is December in Kent, we're picturing an extremely dark, wintry evening. Um, And of course, just candles provide the light. And because it's in around Christmas time, it's a sort of festive spirit, there would have been local people gathered in the cathedral too. So you have your choir of monks singing, And then you have the people gathered to to be there um, to witness Vespers. And that's when the four knights um, get through the door. And this is when (laughs) the beginning of the end starts, as it were. Uh, Beckett, we're told by the eyewitnesses, 
um, is standing somewhere between an altar dedicated to St. Benedict and an altar dedicated to the Virgin Mary. Uh, he would have been in dark robes and he would have been near a column. So he's hard to see. And the when the knights rush in, they call out to him and they say, you know, where is Thomas Beckett, traitor to the king? And he calmly emerges and says, I'm here, no traitor, and I'm ready to die. So the stakes are raised from the beginning. And it's almost as if he's walking onto a stage for his martyrdom. There's something about this account in 1170 that is almost reminiscent of the first martyrs, you know, like the the women who died in Carthage, Perpetua and Felicity, or, or even Polycarp. There's a sense of this taking place on a stage. And every word he uses... <laughs> that then in the next couple of minutes um, is, is pronounced with such a degree of thought and care. Um, the knights approach him, again, trying to manhandle him. And to be clear, historians agree that they, they didn't go in that space to kill Beckett. They entered the North Transept to try to capture him and remove him and take him to Winchester. But um, those words exchanged between the knight and the archbishop uh, get increasingly angry. And anger is really important here. And at one stage, uh, it seems as if Beckett did know one of those knights rather well, Reginald Fitzurse. And when Reginald Fitzurse attempts to touch Beckett and pull him down, Beckett actually says, take your hands off of me, you pimp. And at that word, the knight draws his sword. And remember, it's very dark. And he goes to sort of apparently try to cut Beckett's head off in that one blow. But something strange happens. And that man, that first hagiographer, that biographer I mentioned, Edward Grimm, he's on the scene. Beckett's other friends have fled from what's a a, a kind of almost a crime scene. But Edward Grimm leans in. And this is something that is represented in lots of uh, images. Um, He stretches his arm out, and this probably thwarts the first blow so that Beckett's head is then dashed. Then there were four more blows from the knights. And at one stage, a knight slices off the entirety of the top of his cranium, or crown, corona in Latin, so that his brain is exposed. And all the while, Beckett is a picture of composure. He has the power over his body still to fall to his knees and pray. And he prays, according to one account, to Christ, the Virgin Mary, and St. Denis. And of course, St. Denis is not just the patron saint of France. He's one of the most famous martyrs in Christendom who was beheaded. So Beckett is fully in control of his fate as he's being ripped apart by these, by these knights. Finally, one terrible blow knocks him down and he's then face down on the pavement. And there was a man called Hugh Moclerk, a clerk who was sort of with these four knights. And he does perhaps the grossest, most Game of Thrones act of the the whole horrible event when he takes his weapon and he inserts it into the space, the cavity of Beckett's skull, and then flicks it so that the brains scatter across the pavement in North Transept. And he says to everyone, let's leave this place. He will not get up again. 
And so they've left the Archbishop of Canterbury half beheaded in a pool of his own blood and brains in front of the choir of singing monks and in front of a gathering of local people, and they exit the cathedral. What a terrible act of sacrilegious violence to take place in one of the most ancient holy sites in all of the British Isles. So that's absolutely gruesome uh, and, and graphic, and thank you for, for that account. Before we get on to the, um, to the immediate reaction to that, I d- I've often wondered about this idea of, of, of Beckett's composure. Is that, I mean, it seems unlikely that anyone would be composed in the face of, he was defenceless, presumably, uh, you know, be composed in the face of a, such a brutal assault like that. Is that idea of him being composed, is that not just part of this uh, hagiography, this, this, uh, this later sense that he ought to be a saintly figure? Yes, I'm, I'm sure there's a certain amount of um, controlling the narrative by our wonderful and uh, detailed hagiographers and eyewitnesses, including that man, Edward Grimm. For example, in Grimm's version of the blow-by-blow account, and we, we do trust him, he was right there. Um, he's very keen to stress that Beckett suffered from five blows. And in saying that there were five horrible Uh, attacks on his body. He is, of course, likening Beckett to Christ, who suffered five wounds at the crucifixion, two in his hands, two in his feet, and one in his side. So we can see that symbolic scaffolding placed onto Beckett in the very moment of his death by the chief eyewitness and hagiographer, yes, of course. But I would be surprised if all of the biographers and all of the eyewitnesses um, were, were inventing this because they all do agree it's the thing they disagree on is you know who which saint did he name as he died and i mentioned saint denis another author says it was saint alfie or alfiac um an earlier archbishop of canterbury and that's where the details do contrast but all of the accounts agree that in the first instance what happened to becket was absolutely shocking but also that he endured embraced and confronted this martyrdom with an astounding amount of bravery. So I, I think I trust the sources as a group, um, as a group of witnesses to something horrible. Um, but of course, there were many layers of nuance and crafting of the prose to to show that Beckett's death was, in some sense, an imitation of Christ. Yes. And, and just one more thing on Beckett before we before we move on. So he would have been around fifty at this point. Um, do, do we know? Would it, was he a robust man? Was he? Would, would he? Was he a big, strong man? Or yes. Well, we assume that Beckett would have probably just turned fifty, and uh, the number fifty, of course, is important for jubilees, anniversaries, commemorations, and that's part of what we're doing in the wake of twenty twenty, which is the eight hundred and fiftieth anniversary of Beckett's martyrdom and the eight hundredth anniversary of the movement of his sacred relics into a new shrine. When Beckett died at fifty. Yes, he was, he was quite strong. We know from the sources he would have been a thin man, uh, rather tall, uh, an impressive speaker, sometimes had a stutter, um, but, but grave and commanding. And this is someone who chose his words well. And um, a number of, especially earlier scholars, have tried to argue that um, his name, Beckett, might allude to some sort of physical characteristic. But of course, this is very problematic. Um, Beckett is his surname. It might have something to do with the Abbey of Beck 
in Normandy, um, or of course the the fact that his his father had the name. It's of Beck, um, but some scholars a long time ago assumed that it referred to him having a beaked nose or a beak like nose. But there's no substance really in that. Um, but yes, Beckett would have been tall, thin, somber, and grave uh, at the age of 50. And he would have looked the part as someone who was prepared to die, I think. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They are building the cult into the blueprint of the new Gothic cathedral. It is going to transform into a place where pilgrims can enter the cathedral as if they're on a super highway towards salvation. And the decoration that surrounds them, including the wonderful stained glass miracle windows, become the billboards. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Right, so so there we are. We've got this tall, thin man uh, lying in a pool of his own blood and brains on the on the stone flagstones of the of the cathedral floor late in December. His friends have deserted him. But it, almost immediately, people start to see miracles going on. Is that right? Well, so, so it's it's a very quick process of of what happens. So, so drop us into that. What what happens next? That's right. So the four knights and that one horrible clerk called Hugh flee the scene, leaving the Archbishop Canterbury face down in a puddle of his own blood and brains, with his skull cap severed from his head, and the monks are in shock as are the people who have just witnessed this violent assassination. And we have a number of sources which explain in in great detail what happened in the following minutes and also the first miracle related to Beckett happened that very night. Um, So one of our sources is a man called Benedict of Peterborough, and he was a monk at Christ Church. And he tells us 
that he and his community were, were, were quite keen uh, to bury Beckett quickly. Um, there was fear that the knights might come back and take his body, desecrate it further. Um, so they want to prepare to bury him. Um, when they first touch his body and flip it over, and when he's face up, Benedict reports something extraordinarily moving. He says that Beckett's face looked completely fine with the exception of a shot, a diagonal line of red blood ripping across his, dripping rather across his face from temple to cheek. And so he almost looked beatific as soon as they saw his face again. Now, the monks um, lay him out in front of the altar and then rush him down into the crypt where he was buried for the next 50 years. And in the crypt, they go to prepare his body for burial. And as they Un unwrap him, as it were, they discover something that shocked them again. Uh, Beckett, underneath his monastic robes, was wearing a worm-infested, itchy, stinky hair shirt. He had this sort of secret, devotional, private life that they knew nothing about. And Beckett had been criticized by the monks of Canterbury and other holy men throughout his lifetime for appearing to live in splendor. This is a man who used to go hunting with the king. Secretly, then, of course, he kept his own private discipline to himself. And that's really what took the monks by surprise. Um, he was then buried in his shroud quite quickly and put into the crypt. Meanwhile, up at the crime scene in the north transept of Canterbury Cathedral, we have another account from a man called William Fitzstephen, who, who tells us that the people who'd witnessed this start using the clothes they're wearing and any cloth they can get a hand of, ha their hands on, to mop up the blood and brains as if they already knew it was a relic. It was already charged with his power and presence and it already perhaps had curative powers. So you've got this scene where they're, they're not cleaning the crime scene, they're taking mementos and souvenirs from it. And some of the people who'd witnessed this are even taking the blood and rubbing it into their eyes, which seems like a very frightening ritual to do. But again, these people believe that they just witnessed a martyrdom. It's not often that you would see a Christian martyr in the 12th century. We're, we're long past the days of the persecution under Diocletian. Um, this, was, this was an event, and that was their way of connecting to it. So William Fitzstephen also tells us that that very night, a man um, brought some of this, uh, this blood of Beckett at home in Canterbury, and he mixed that blood with some water um, to make a sort of concoction because his wife was ill. He then offered this drink to his wife, and that very night she was cured of her illness. So it's also extraordinary to, to realize that the same date of Beckett's death is truly the date of the beginning of his cult because his blood was already reportedly working miracles hours after it first hit the floor in Canterbury Cathedral. And I should, I should clarify too that that was the first of 703 miracles recorded in the next couple of years, just a couple of years within the next decade. So this cult explodes not only was this the sort of assassination that took kind of Christendom by storm, the story and the power of the efficacy of his relic cults was is unlike anything else 
we see at this point in the Middle Ages. It's an instant, effective phenomenon. And, and you talk about those uh, those 703 miracles in the excellent feature you've written for, for BBC History magazine, which everyone should go and have a read of. And you also mentioned that there were um, something in the order of 100,000 visitors who came to, uh, to, to basically marvel at his relics in, in, that, in that first decade as well, which is an extraordinary uh, number of people. So that does to speak of that of that explosion of the cult. So he was canonized just 3 years after his death, I think. Is is this this is all very rapid, isn't it? Is this this is all presumably unusually quick. Yes, this is unusually quick. So Becket is 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 murdered or rather martyred in 1170 in December. He is canonized by Pope Alexander III in February of 1173. And in, those, in, in the time that passed between his gruesome death and his canonization, we have literally hundreds of miracles that have been recorded. And as I've already alluded to, some really captivating stories of his life and death. The case is a clear winner for the Pope. And um, inst- the, the instant kind of effect of his cult is also really, really important here. Um, The other thing that I need to add to our understanding, to enhance our understanding of the early cult of St. Thomas Becket is something that happens in 1174. We already have had hundreds of thousands of visitors to the location of his body in the crypt. But in 1174, the east end of Canterbury Cathedral burns down in a devastating fire in September of that year. Gone is the beautiful choir initiated initiated by St. Anselm himself. And the monks are then left with this, this ruined shell of a gigantic, formerly powerful place. What's so interesting then is that we're now just four years after Becket's death and one year into his story as a saint. And we know from an amazing primary source account, a man called Gervais of Canterbury, who's a sort of secretary figure, as as it were, a sacristan too. He's looking after the objects in the cathedral. He's a monk at Christchurch, and he leaves behind a text which describes the fire at Canterbury Cathedral. It's an amazing text to read and to teach. But Gervais of Canterbury also tells us about how they commissioned the design and the rebuilding of the cathedral. And we're told from Gervais that the monks bring in architects and artificers from all over, including England and France, and they end up appointing someone called William of Sens. Um, and this man, they then it's, it's then apparent if you read carefully into what Gervais says and look closely at the design of Canterbury Cathedral, that after the fire of 1174, they are building the cult into the blueprint of the new Gothic cathedral. It is going to transform into a place where pilgrims can enter the cathedral as if they're on a super highway towards salvation. And the decoration that surrounds them, including the wonderful stained glass miracle windows, become the billboards. So you have this opportunity, as it were, with the fire that emerges after the canonization. And therefore, if we're talking about setting a stage, that's when Canterbury becomes the pilgrimage destination of, of medieval Europe, rivaling perhaps, of course, Jerusalem, Rome, and Santiago. Um, but, but the place is now ready to accommodate hundreds of thousands of more pilgrims to venerate the body, the brains, and the skull, and the blood of Becket. So I remember a, a few years ago when I was writing something about this uh, this episode for the magazine, uh, there, was a, there was a theory put forward. I wonder whether it's 
gain traction or not, that it was the monks themselves who started that <laughs> fire so that they could rebuild the place better to accommodate the pilgrims. Is that, is, do I remembering that right? I'm sure someone has suggested that. Is that, is that uh, in any way tenable? Well, I don't think it's tenable, but it is such a wonderful topic to share with undergraduates in a seminar. It's good to get them debating about, did the monks commit arson? It is quite fun. But I think the fact of the matter is, um, no, you wouldn't want to burn down your own church. And uh, as Gervais says in his opening lamentation in the text, I mean, they were miserable. They felt devastated. They compared themselves to people being expelled from the Holy Land. Um, this this was a, a, a terrible thing. But I think, I think as an art historian, and an architectural historian, uh, one can't help but see the, the, the horrors of a fire uh, in the Middle Ages as an opportunity for the building in a new style. And it is no coincidence that Canterbury Cathedral is the first, not technically first, bit of Gothic in, in the British Isles, but the first sort of cohesive Gothic project. And had the fire not happened when it did, perhaps the whole history of English style would be different. And so, yes, of course, the fire was a devastating thing. No, I don't think the monks started it. But I think it was an opportunity, not just to bring more pilgrims in, but to, to construct a, an extraordinary building that had never been seen before in that way in that part of the world. So a crucial moment in art history and also a crucial moment in uh, in the story of Canterbury is it becomes this massively important and popular pilgrim centre. I was reading his uh, Beckett's entry in uh, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Uh, Frank Barlow uh, wrote it. And he basically, he says that he's becoming... Uh, Beckett's becoming England's patron saint. He's sort of surpassing St. Edmund and Berry and Edward the Confessor. And, and, and this is before St. George becomes popular. Is that right? Is, is Beckett kind of becoming the patron saint at this, at this stage? Yes, I'd say that Thomas Beckett, from the moment of his death, becomes uh, a patron saint here, perhaps the patron saint, but he's really the, the patron of the people. Here. He's, a, he's a vox populi. He, he's a rebel. He's a figure for standing up for yourself. And um, even with that said, the types of pilgrims he attracted throughout the Middle Ages were for, from all walks of life, you know, kings and, and lepers and carpenters and merchants and soldiers and young girls. It's all over the map. He, he appealed to, to everybody. And um, I think it's safe to say that, of course, Beckett becomes the most popular saint on this side of the channel, yes. Um, he also is a kind of patron saint for the city of London. He's on their city seal throughout the later Middle Ages. But, but for me, and I think for a lot of other historians, uh, what's so exciting about Beckett is that he really becomes a universal saint. Um, it's extraordinary to, to realize that the first or earliest surviving monumental image of Beckett in the history of art is not in England, not in Northern Europe. It's in Palermo, or rather just outside of Palermo in Monreale, in the mosaics there. A gigantic image of Beckett as a saint that dates to the 1180s. There are countless vestiges of altarpieces, wall paintings of Beckett all over Spain, all over Italy, in the decades following his death. He didn't belong to people here, he belonged to everyone. And I think that's what's so appealing about reflecting on Beckett today is he is someone who stood up for his beliefs and died for them. And his story was so grisly, so gruesome, so brave that it's something we even love to hear today because it's just, it's a remarkable thing. He, he did something unlike anyone else of his time. He, he, 
was the most powerful person in his position, and he gave it all up for the ideas he held most dear. And one doesn't have to be a medievalist or a Christian or, or like Game of Thrones to enjoy the story and the legacy of Beckett. And of course, speaking of Game of Thrones, Henry II has to come back and and parade in sackcloth and ashes in a in yes. a in a in a curiously Game of Thrones style. Um, well, I'm sure Game of Thrones was following from, from that. <laughs> but um, so 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 okay. So we need to move on to to get to the end of the story. But so yes. um, the, the dissolution, this all comes crashing down. What 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 happens to to Beckett's shrine and memorial uh, in the reign of Henry VIII? Well, with the dissolution of the monasteries, uh, the monks at Christchurch um, are approaching the, the end of their career and the, 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 the total destruction of the treasures they've guarded for, for centuries. Uh, this includes the shrine of St. Thomas Becket. And I should add also the shrine of his head and brains um, uh, in a head reliquary in the Corona Chapel. So there were two major sites of devotion to Becket in the cathedral itself. Uh, his body was placed in the Trinity Chapel in a beautiful, dazzling, golden casket covered in gems, a gigantic ruby sparkling that so many pilgrims commented on. Now, in 1538, um, those, those precious stones and gems, they were, they were melted down. And um, his body, uh, what, what was left of it, was um, uh, destroyed. Um, some, we, we assume it was sort of shot out of a cannon or dumped in the River Stour. And there was a sort of Victorian fantasy that the, a skeleton of Beckett had been uncovered by an archaeologist in the cathedral, but um, I don't think this is the case. Um, they, they tried to erase Beckett. And it makes total sense that a king like Henry VIII would see Beckett as embodying all that he loathed in the church. And one extraordinary thing to do or to, to, to look at is to, to examine um, a medieval book of a calendar with a liturgical calendar here made in England. And if you look carefully at the entries for the month of December, and if you look down to the date of the 29th of December, Sometimes you'll see that the name Thomas Beckett has been scratched out, erased, or painted over. That is how exacting the iconoclasm was against Beckett in the wake of the Reformation. Um, so even though his body is no longer the centerpiece of the cathedral, and even though so many attempts to erase him have, have left us with no, no trace, no physical trace of his name or the pictures um, uh, in so many places. Um, I think the place where we can see Beckett today and his legacy is in the design of Canterbury Cathedral and in the way we think about and reflect on um, political bravery or, or standing up in front of tyrants, um, standing up for what we believe in. Um, so I would encourage visitors to Canterbury Cathedral to look carefully at the, the Trinity Chapel, the, the 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 wonderful East End, and if you if you catch the light in the right way, you'll see this ledge or this kind of lip in the pavement, a straight line that runs across it. And what you're looking at is the imprint from thousands and thousands and thousands of knees rubbing up that point of the pavement where the shrine used to be. It's he's literally impressed into the fabric of the cathedral. And perhaps another place to look for Beckett is and the strong voices that rally against tyranny and the, yeah, that rally against the people. So I, I see Beckett in lots of places still today, even though he was almost erased. 
You've, you've answered my my penultimate question there very nicely. I was going to say, what what, what should our listeners, assuming uh, they can go and visit Canterbury with uh, once Corona's over, what should they do to to try and get to understand the place? But you, you've pretty much answered that. I mean, it is a very affecting place. I've been there, and you can you know you you can get a sense of obviously you can get a sense of history. It's a very old and venerable place. But so so that's your advice. Is there anything else you would add to that? As to is, if you if you're able to go to the place, how how should you try and try and be be within Beckett's spirit? Yes, I think in 2021, when the world is hopefully a safer place, please, please visit Canterbury Cathedral and walk around. You can actually retrace the footsteps of Beckett's martyrdom, but of course, in a safe way. And look carefully at the beautiful windows that surround the Trinity Chapel. Uh, These date to around the year 1200, and they show some of Beckett's many, many miracles. Look closely and you'll see all the different types of people he healed and protected. And in addition to visiting Canterbury Cathedral, please do make a uh, make a note in your diary that in April of 2021, there'll be a blockbuster exhibition on Thomas Beckett in the British Museum, where you can see a host of amazing objects brought from all over the world that testify to the legacy of this wonderful, weird saint. So that's something to look forward to. Fingers crossed that it's uh, this all goes ahead. Uh, I'm sure it will do, and that'll be that'll be an amazing exhibition. Right, last last thing, Emily. Just um, thank you so much for, for for guiding us through this story. Just to finish up, what 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 are the key takeaways from this story? Do you think? What, why why are we still talking about this story 850 years on? Why does it matter? And how should we understand it? You as a medieval historian, art historian, what, what what's your view? Well, my view on Beckett is that he is someone who appeals to many, many people. And he he symbolized that sort of bravery and that intensity in a way that brought lots of different communities together. Uh, I'm thinking, of course, even of Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Uh, Beckett is a uniting figure. And he's also a figure that brings folks from all over and brings us together to share stories, to talk about stories, and to embrace him as a sort of a hero who can protect us. Um, But I think the most important element about Beckett is that if we measure and try to trace the reach and scope of his cult, what we see is um, not just that interest in storytelling and pilgrimage, but we see a a, a huge communal collective fascination with, with a person, with a person who in his life was flawed and was moody and temperamental, but in his afterlife was extraordinary. And I think What's so interesting to me as an art historian is how literature, hagiography, paintings, uh, buildings accommodate the cult, enable the rituals to happen, and in so doing facilitate the reinvention of Beckett as a saint. And I think just watching those, those phenomena take form and looking at how people who loved Beckett created the saint they needed is one of the most exciting things about reflecting on Beckett's legacy today. Thank you so much, Emily. That's uh, a fascinating guide to a fascinating topic. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Dave. That was Dr. Emily Gerry. You can read her feature on Beckett's murder in the January issue of BBC History magazine. That's out now and also includes articles on Bonnie Prince Charlie, the history of vaccines and a whole lot more. You can also find a wealth of material on Thomas Beckett on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on Catholics in the Elizabethan era. 